Welcome to the Living by Faith podcast. My name is Josh DeGroat, and this is episode number 16. Thanks for checking it out. This is a podcast where I take a look at some news and event items, theology and history, all from the perspective of the Christian's life of faith in Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and jump in. Well, 2020 is the year that just keeps on giving. Last Friday, huge news broke when news came out that 87-year-old Ruth Bader Ginsburg died after serving 27 years on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Over the years, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had battled cancer three previous times. This was her fourth time, and finally, she succumbed to cancer and died at the age of 87. Apparently, on her deathbed, her dying wish was that she would not be replaced by Donald Trump, the current president. She did not want to be replaced by him. She wanted to hold out and hopefully be replaced by a Democratic president. It also was apparent that back during the 2016 presidential election, she would have liked to have been replaced by Hillary Clinton. Now, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her dying wish has no bearing on the constitutional process of replacing a judge. It has zero bearing on the process. It's completely irrelevant what her dying wish was. And so now this is going to set up an epic battle for her replacement. Now, you thought the Senate process was ugly for Brett Kavanaugh when he was appointed a Supreme Court judge just a couple of years ago. It's hard to imagine it getting any worse, but hey, it's 2020, it's an election year, so I am sure that it will. Already, the Democratic Party is calling for this process to wait until after the election, reminding the public of what happened back in 2016 when then Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died, and it was an election year, and Barack Obama wanted to appoint another justice to take Scalia's place, and the Republican-led Senate refused to, to, to go through the confirmation process. But it's a different situation we find ourselves in now, and the, the Senate's responsibility is to, uh, to confirm a judge that they believe will interpret the Constitution faithfully. In the history of the United States of America, there have been 29 times when a, when a judge needed to be, a new Supreme Court justice needed to be appointed in an election year. Of those 29 times, 19 of those times, the, the president and the Senate have been in the same party. And of those 19, 17 times, the, the president's appointment has been confirmed by the Senate. On the other hand, those other 10 times when... Um, the president and the Senate are of, of opposing parties. One's a Republican, one's a Democrat. Just two out of those 10 times has the president's appointment been confirmed. So there is precedence for the Senate to move forward with the, the president's recommendation and go ahead with the confirmation process. So the Republicans in the Senate have the responsibility to confirm a judge to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg and they, they have the responsi- responsibility to replace her with a judge that will faithfully interpret the Constitution. And this highlights one of the significant differences in judicial philosophy between, between the Republicans and Democrats, at least generally, in terms of their appointees. Republicans, or maybe more accurately conservatives, typically look for a jurist who will interpret the Constitution in what's called an originalist way. In other words, they look for judges who will try to interpret the Constitution in a way that's consistent with its original intent. 
They will apply it to today, but they're not looking for something that isn't there. They're not trying to create new rights, which the government is not supposed to do. Our rights come from God. The government doesn't create and doesn't give us rights. The Democrats, on the other hand, or or leftists or liberals, tend to appoint judges who interpret the Constitution as a living document, ever-changing to meet the changing times in which we live. And so there's much more latitude to let personal opinion and to let the ever-changing public opinion bear upon the meaning of the text of the Constitution. For some time now, the Democratic Party, by and large, they've seen the, the, the Supreme Court as a sort of super legislature to help push their agenda forward. And let's face it, the Supreme Court has done just that. They've pushed the liberal agenda forward, whether it's Roe v. Wade granting a woman the right to abort her baby, or Obergefell granting this, this, this right of marriage for homosexual couples and so forth. And Ruth, Gator Bins, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been the, the tip of the spear for the last 27 years for the liberal agenda on the Supreme Court. Now, without question, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had some admirable qualities, no doubt. She was brilliant. She was brilliant in school as a law student. She was brilliant as a professor. She was brilliant when she worked as an attorney for the ACLU. She was brilliant as an appellate judge and as a Supreme Court justice. She showed this. She was a brilliant, brilliant woman, no doubt. She was also determined. She had goals and she had purposes. She had aspirations and she didn't let artificial barriers stop her from achieving those goals and aspirations. These are qualities to admire and we should admire them. However, the removal of her, uh, the removal of her influence from the Supreme Court is a good thing. Given her approach in handling the Constitution, she saw it as a living document. And given her extreme views, her extreme leftist views on things like abortion, she believed that there should be no restrictions for abortion, and she believed that it was a fundamental right for, for women to receive abortions paid for by the taxpayers. She was also extremely liberal and radical on her views on the whole range of LBGTQ plus issues, as well as religious liberty matters. And so for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to be off the Supreme Court, I think overall is a good thing. Now, as Christians, we also need to be reminded that death is the enemy of all of us. When, when someone dies in the public light in such a public manner, we should take time to remember and respect this, this person who died, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in this instance, but also remember that death will come for all of us at some point. Furthermore, we need to reflect on the sober reality taught in the scriptures that each person upon death will meet God. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, It is appointed unto man to die once, and then comes judgment. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has been a Supreme Court justice for 27 years, has met the eternal and supreme judge of all the earth. And that is a sober, sober reality. She has met her maker. And by all accounts, she has met her maker, not 
covered by the blood of Jesus, which is the only hope for all of us. Therefore, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is no cause for us to gleefully rejoice. We might say it's good for her to be off the Supreme Court Court bench, but it's no cause for us to gleefully rejoice. God says in Ezekiel 33, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn and repent. And we shouldn't have pleasure in the death of the wicked either. But we can be assured of one thing as we look to the immediate future and to the long-term future. Abraham asked the following rhetorical question in Genesis 18. He said, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is, of course he will. He will do what's right. The next section is what I call the catechesis section. For centuries, Christians gave themselves to the practice of learning the doctrines of the Christian faith with a catechism questions and answers with scripture to teach in a succinct, systematic sort of way the doctrines of the Christian faith. The word catechesis simply means to orally instruct or to instruct by word of mouth. I think this is a practice that's sorely missing in our day, and I I believe we would benefit tremendously by taking it up again. So I'm doing my part to promote this practice And so I'm going through a modern catechism called the New City Catechism. It takes from old ancient catechisms, um, a few different ones, puts it together in more modern language. There's one question, one answer, and scripture for each week of the year. There's 52 questions and answers with the scripture along with it. So we are on question and answer number 16. And here's question 16. What is sin? Answer. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. This definition is really important. Sin is the outright rejection of God or the seemingly more benign ignoring of God. Perhaps you've heard of the sins of commission and the sins of omission. Sins of commission are sins that we commit in an active way. Sins of omission are sins that we simply omit. We sin by omitting to do what we ought to do or ignoring to do what we ought to do. The definition goes on to say that sin is rebellion against God against God. Sin is rebellion. Let that sink in. Sin is not just making a bad choice. It is a high revolt against the authority of God. One thing is certain. If we have a small and low view of sin, it will impact our view of God. It will impact our view of, of his gospel, and it will impact our view. It, it'll impact our, the view of our lives as Christians. Let's think about this a little bit. It'll impact our view of God, who is holy and majestic. A low view of sin leads to a low view of God. In fact, probably a view of God that's much like how we think of ourselves. Furthermore, a low view of sin will weaken our view of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that God saves rebels and sinners, will become just ordinary news. 
The good news will just become news. It won't, it won't thrill us. It won't excite us that God has rescued me. He has saved me when I was rebelling against him. And without a proper view of sin, we will inevitably have a paltry understanding of the life of holiness that we're called to. We are called to strive for holiness, not in order to save ourselves, but as saved, redeemed people of God. We're called to strive for holiness. We're, tr- we're called to strive to live Christ-like lives, to, to be and live and, and behave and become more like our Savior. Ignorance is never bliss. It is good for us to have a biblical definition of sin, which leads to our text for question number 16. It's out of 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. And it says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In this episode's history section, I want to touch on another ancient heresy. 20th century theologian B.B. Warfield once said that there are fundamentally two teachings of salvation. One is that salvation is from God, and the other is that salvation is from man, or that man basically saves himself. Well, the ancient heresy of Pelagianism is the teaching that man basically saves himself. It teaches that Jesus was a good example and that if we follow him, we can basically save ourselves. Pelagianism teaches that human beings are basically born innocent, like Adam and Eve were innocent before they sinned. If you've ever heard someone teach, hey, people are basically good, or people are born good and they're basically innocent, it's a dis- th- that kind of teaching is a distant cousin or maybe a direct descendant of Pelagianism. So Pelagianism comes from a man named Pelagius. So who was Pelagius? Pelagius was a monk who lived in the 4th and early 5th centuries. At a certain point in his life, he made his way to Rome, and while he was there, he was troubled by the moral laxity among the Christians there. So he began to promote a strict lifestyle that included ascetic practices. Asceticism is the harsh treatment of the body in order to achieve greater holiness. He did this in response to the moral indifference he saw among Christians. His austere and strict lifestyle and trust in human goodness and willpower brought him into conflict with someone you've probably heard of before, St. Augustine. It's said that Pelagius heard a quote from St. Augustine's confessions in which Augustine said, quote, command what you will and give what you command, end quote. This was Augustine praying to God. He said, God, command what you will and give what you command. Pelagius thought that this kind of teaching was false and actually blamed that kind of teaching for the moral laxity he saw all around him. Now, Augustine was simply following the pattern of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture that that says we're saved by grace and we continue in faith and obedience by grace. But Pelagius believed that if the Bible commanded us to do something, then we must have the power in ourselves to do it, even without God's help. He thought, how could God command us to do something we, didn't, we don't have the power to carry out? 
The fundamental problem of Pelagius was that he denied and utterly rejected original sin, and this led to all sorts of other problems. He denied that we are born with a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. Adam sinned, and he plunged all of humanity after him into sin. Pelagius saw Adam as a bad example, not as the head of the human race who plunged all that followed him into the corruption of sin. The truth is we sin because we are sinners by nature, but Pelagius would have taught that we are sinners because we sin. As a consequence, Pelagius viewed Jesus not primarily as a savior and redeemer, but as an example. Jesus, he said, was an example that that we are to follow in order to save ourselves. Now, of course, Jesus is our example, and he's a good example. But he is first and foremost our Savior. He is first and foremost our Redeemer. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. Therefore, salvation for Pelagius was a matter of following the example of Jesus rather than trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Salvation was about living innocent lives rather than being made a new creation. Salvation was about living a strict, righteous life rather than being given the free gift of Christ's righteousness. I think it's fair to say that Pelagianism is a religion of fallen, sinful, natural man trying to save himself. Christianity, on the other hand, is about God graciously and powerfully saving sinners through Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the great old hymn, Jesus Paid It All, which communicates this truth so beautifully in the last verse where it says, And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. Amen. Jesus has washed us as white as snow. Thanks again for listening to the Living by Faith podcast. If you found it helpful, please subscribe, like, and share. And until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all.